You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Do you have any yoga buddies? Do you have friends that you get together with and completely nerd out about yoga? My guest today is Libby Hinesley, who is a physical therapist and a yoga teacher and one of my dearest, dearest yoga buddies. She and I were in teacher training together, our first teacher training together, I would say about 14 years ago. And we have stayed in touch. We live in the same town. We've taught at the same studio. And we have a blast whenever we get together and nerd out on yoga. Today, you get to listen in. You get to overhear one of our conversations. Libby is talking about the psoas in this She's giving us a lowdown on everything that yoga teachers need to know about the psoas, psoas major specifically. A little bit more about Libby. She's a licensed physical therapist and a certified yoga therapist. She's been teaching yoga since 1996 or five, somewhere around there. That's as long as I have been. And she's been training yoga instructors for seven years. Her yoga practice and teaching is influenced by the tradition of Krishnamacharya and Desikachar in the Vini Yoga lineage. Her interest in therapeutic yoga led her to pursue her degree in physical therapy. And she practices physical therapy at Asheville Holistic Physical Therapy, where she integrates yoga-based practices and manual therapy. She specializes in the treatment of a wide variety of musculoskeletal and neuromuscular complaints, including back pain, pelvic floor dysfunction, and chronic pain. In addition to her work as a PT, Libby is the director and lead instructor of the Asheville Yoga Center's 300-hour therapeutically-oriented yoga teacher training. She offers three weekly yoga classes per week and weekend teacher training workshops in yoga for chronic pain, yoga for older adults, anatomy for yoga, and yoga for pregnancy and postpartum. I can also say from personal experience that in addition to being super smart, Libby is one of the kindest people you will ever meet. So please enjoy this conversation with Libby Hinesley. Even the people who are the most expert at studying the human body say they don't know. And there's way more that we don't know about the body than what we do, for sure. So it's always interesting to me, and we're always balancing between accuracy and clarity. Mm-hmm. Because the human body is so complex that if you try to be 100% accurate, there's no way to follow, mm-hmm. especially depending on who you are. But you, So you're going to be how accurate can I be and still be comprehensible to who I'm talking to? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of this points directly to how can we be less misleading in yoga class in terms of our communication in yoga as a yoga teacher. 
and if we understand that there's more that we don't know than what we do know, we will say less, right? So we just say less about it and do more exploring about it. That's kind of my feeling about yoga cueing. I think we way, way over cue. And our cues are so misleading because we have we don't have much understanding about the body actually as a yoga teacher. Most yoga teachers have very little understanding about how the body actually works. And there's a big gap between always between what we know and what we could know. And the more we know doesn't eliminate that gap. But the thing that's funny about the gap is that we don't know how big it is. So as a new yoga teacher, I might think I know a lot about the body, but I don't know what I don't know. I don't know this gap. I don't even know the gap exists, right, between what I know now and what, say, a PT or a, or a orthopedist or whatever knows, right? I just don't even know that there's a gap there. And then even if I'm over here on the gap, there's still a gap, you know, and I don't know what I don't know. So I just am where I am. Does that make sense? Definitely. So, and I think that makes it tricky for yoga teachers because we come out of the gate knowing very, very little about the mechanics of the body and not really understanding how much there is to know. And then beyond that, how much nobody knows. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, let's start with what we do know. What do we know about SOAS major? Are you recording now? Totally. No. Yes, I am. I you have. Are? Yeah, because it's been awesome. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay. You've been doing great. That's why I started recording. I was like, oh God, I'm not going to miss this. Oh, oh wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about what we know about psoas major, this really important muscle in the body. We have one on each side of the spine, and this muscle runs from the entire lumbar spine down into the femur bone, way into the groin, the deep inner groin on the lesser trochanter of the femur. It's where it attaches down low. And then up high, it attaches along every lumbar vertebrae and every lumbar disc, and also into the T12, your last thoracic vertebra. So it has a really broad attachment system. And inside the substance of psoas major, we also will find the lumbar nerve plexus, which as we talk about, different things that can happen to psoas major and how it adapts and, and responds to life, then it'll become also important to know that it's, it has the ability to kind of squeeze down on an entire very uh, far-reaching lumbar nerve plexus. So that's a little bit about the anatomy of psoas major. Can I ask you a kind of nerdy question about it? Sure. As far as origin and, and insertion go, which end of the joint is considered more stable and which one's considered more movable? Good question. Technically, the insertion would be considered uh, the lesser trochanter of the femur bone. I don't really like talking about origin and insertion because it makes more sense to me to just think about attachment sites because either attachment, any of those attachment sites, and all of them are impacted by how so as major functions. But if we wanted to get technical about origin and insertion, it would have a very broad origin along the whole lumbar spine and T12, and it would insert into the femur bone. I was just curious about it because to me, I can't, there's not an intuitive 
spot that's more mobile, right? It kind of just depends on how you're using it and what you're engaging to create mobility or stability. Yeah, exactly. It just depends on what kind of movement you're doing and what you're engaging. Exactly. So one of the things that gets confusing about psoas major is that it's technically and often lumped together with some other muscles. Iliacus is a hip flexor. Very often psoas major is lumped together with iliacus and placed into the umbrella of a hip flexor, the hip flexor group. And psoas major has a couple different functions. And I would suggest that really its hip flexion function is secondary to its lumbosacral stability function. And there are other muscles who really perform hip flexion primarily. And I would put iliacus and rectus femoris in that camp. There are other muscles that also help with hip flexion, the TFL and pectineus, right? So we have like six different hip hip flexor muscles, but so as major gets lumped into that group. And I think it's more complicated than just calling it a hip flexor. Lumbosacral stability is what you consider to be the primary purpose? Yes, I think it's the most important function of this muscle because this muscle crosses so many joints. So it has influence on such a broad range of um, your body. And I consider, you know, I don't want to blame everything that goes wrong in the lumbosacral area on psoas major because when we have problems or complaints, low back pain, et cetera, all the things that psoas may contribute to, there's always more going on than just one muscle. So I consider the whole body always as a forest and it always works together as a unit. But psoas major happens to be a really powerful tree. If we think of the muscles, different parts of the body as trees in this big forest, psoas major is a powerful tree that actually shapes the forest in a different way. And it does that because it crosses so many joints of the spine and contributes so much to postural stability. How we hold the rib cage relative to the pelvis, what's the stability of the lumbar spine, et cetera. That psoas major is huge in determining that and also in contributing to pelvic symmetry or asymmetry, pelvic obliquities, where maybe one side of the pelvis is elevated or rotated asymmetrical tension patterns in psoas major can be a big contributor to that. Again, it's not the only contributor, but it tends to be a big one. We talked about some of the specific challenges to modern humans. Yes, modern humans are facing lots and lots of challenges, but as far as psoas major is concerned, modern humans do a lot of sitting and they do a lot more sitting than our evolutionary counterparts would have done, and a lot less movement. So both of those things, it's not that we necessarily sit too much, it's that we move too little. So the whole body has evolved in this context of movement, a wide variety of movements, quality rest, etc. a mechanical context that we really are completely disconnected from now. And what that means is that the body has to adapt to some new ways of using it. Body is magical at its ability to adapt to how we use it in the same way that the mind adapts to how we use it, right? The actual neuron pathways in the brain change depending on our thought habits, et cetera. And the the body is exactly the same. So the mind stuff and the body stuff are more similar than we realize, I think. 
And the body is adapting all the time. There's never a moment when the body isn't adapting to how we're using it. So many of us may exercise a lot or think we exercise a lot. Maybe we go to the gym every day or spend an hour on our yoga mat every day. And that's, that's awesome. That's quite a lot of movement compared to most modern humans. But then if we go to work or a commute or school and we sit maybe six or eight hours of that day, those hours of sitting have a more powerful impact on how our body's tissues are adapting than our one hour of exercise had. Because there is never a moment when the body isn't adapting to how we're using it. And for modern humans who sit a lot and don't move as much as our evolutionary counterparts would have, the psoas major, along with other muscles too, starts to adapt to that position, the shortened position. The position of sitting has psoas major about three inches shorter than it would be if we were standing in an optimal standing position. So it adapts to that shortness, and I, I do think that it, it starts to become shorter. And I think that's one thing that's going on with psoas major issues is that it has shortened to accommodate for our positioning in an adaptive way. The other thing I think that goes on with psoas major is that it's highly responsive to stress, to a hypersensitive and hyperactive sympathetic nervous system. All muscle tissue responds to heightened stress states by creating tension, by becoming tense. And psoas major is thought to be particularly responsive to that as it prepares us for a fight or flight or flee kind of response. It helps us to curl into a ball, helps us prepare for running fast. It's like a fear response. This tension in psoas major has commonly been thought to be that. And that makes sense to me as well. So I think we're seeing two things go on with psoas major. There's an adaptive quality to it of becoming shorter. And then there's also a tension pattern that's commonly found in it. And sometimes we'll see both of those together. So that's a double whammy. So I want to say a few more things about what psoas major does in the body and how it impacts posture. So we talked about the fact that it contributes to hip flexions, which means it brings the femur bone to the thigh or to the chest rather, or um, the trunk down to the thigh. So that's hip flexion. It also has the ability to really alter standing posture or sitting posture in terms of the position of our pelvis and the position of our rib cage. So when psoas major has optimal length and is able to lengthen to accommodate a really nice upright standing posture where our bones are stacked on each other in a neutral way, then we have this automatic access and more natural access to our deep core. So having psoas major lengthen enough to accommodate neutral rib cage over a neutral pelvis sets us up for diaphragm connecting to pelvic diaphragm, sets us up for deep core function that responds to the breath. This is one of the reasons it's so important to talk about this one tree in the forest is that it really shapes the deep core. So psoas major attaches at the top to T12, which means if it's tense, chronically over-contracted or short or both, then it's going to pull forward on the bottom of the rib cage is going to pull T12 forward, which will produce this rib thrust, we could call it, this rib flare, where the low ribs in the front go up and out. And what that does in the back body is it produces this appearance of a sway back. And the sway back is up high, it's thoracolumbar sway back. 
okay? It's the upper lumbar spine and the lower thoracic spine in a back bend. And that's often what we'll see as yoga teachers in a yoga class in our student. And when we see that, unless our eyeballs are very tuned into the rib cage, we may mistakenly think that that is a product of pelvic positioning. And if we jump to that conclusion, we'll be missing the boat on this. So what the psoas major does in the pelvis is something very different. It actually tilts the pelvis posteriorly and it flexes the lumbosacral curve. When there's so a classic posture with someone who has a psoas problem would be a little bit, a, a loss of the lower lumbar curve, a loss of what I like to call a lumbosacral curve because that indicates how low it is in the lumbar spine, but an exaggerated upper lumbar lordosis. So a sway back, right? So there's a sway back, but the tailbone is actually tucked under the posterior pelvis. And that's very confusing to see in a student, say if you're teaching yoga or working on posture with your class, it's very hard to tease apart what's going on in the pelvis and what's going on in the rib cage, right? But a neutral pelvis is one where the front plane of the pelvis is vertical, which means so the ASIS, the two front, we call them hip points sometimes, but it's part of the ilium, the anterior superior iliac spine, so like the most front pointy part of the pelvis. And then the front of the pubic bone, way down south, when those two bones are lined up vertically, that's in my mind the best kind of rule of thumb about what is a neutral pelvis. When those are lined up that way, we have a nice little lower lumbar curve that is formed. When we can stack the rib cage over top of that neutral pelvis, then we still have a nice little lumbosacral curve, but we have lost our sway back. Stacking it up. I have two cues I give for Tadasana that are more complicated than just these words, but it's back it up and stack it up. Right, back the pelvis up in space to get over your heels and then stack the pelvis and the rib cage. I think it would be helpful for yoga teachers listening to this if you're not, well, even if you're driving, you could probably do this because I'm sitting and you can play with those two different patterns that Libby just talked about. First, you can tuck your pelvis under and then thrust your ribs forward and see what that feels like. And then you can <laughs> let your your pelvis tilt a little bit more, bringing it to neutral and draw your ribs back over your pelvis and feel the difference between those two. And for me, it's so much more stable. The second position feels like it's not only freer, like there's, a, there's, there's more softness, but also more stability at the same time. And it's, it's kind of, I know that's kind of counterintuitive, but I think you're nodding a lot. So you probably agree with me. <laughs> Absolutely. I think you described it perfectly because what happens when the pelvis is neutral is a lot of stuff. One of the things is the pelvic floor muscles get to regain their optimal length and position. When we stack the rib cage over the pelvis, now we have in the transverse plane, we have the pelvic floor muscles down low and the respiratory diaphragm up top, and they are stacked on each other. And they both respond to the breath in a way that connects them. They move together as a kind of a piston system is how it's been described. So when you are able to stack in this way, core stability is 
activated. And it's not a rigid stability. It is dynamic stability. It is all about suppleness. So just as you described, it's about the tissues in the center of the body being able to respond to the breath and create a dynamic stability. So cool. It is. <laughs> and it's really hard to achieve when we have been living in these opposite habits. And what's really tricky for the yoga practitioner and yoga teacher is that for a great many of us, we were taught to do these things in yoga practice that actually lead to more dysfunction. So with our very common verbal cues, sometimes whether it's because we've just been taught to say these things or because we're not sure what we're seeing in a body because it's complicated, we may say, tuck your tailbone, right? I still hear that in yoga classes even now and lift your chest, right? So there are these quick verbal cues that may aim to help someone in their posture, but they're actually training this habit of posterior pelvic tilt and rib thrust. And those two things combined keep the psoas major in a short position in order to get pelvis to neutral, a little anterior from where we normally are, and ribs back, psoas has to lengthen. And if it doesn't have the length to accommodate that, it will go there. And we can practice it over time and, of course, help the body to adapt in this new direction to accommodate this neutral stacking in the center of the body that then facilitates pelvic floor function, deep core function, optimal breathing. So it's kind of funny because I really dislike formulas. So it's very funny that I'm going to talk about a little formula. I see this be very effective for a lot of people, and it can be so gentle and so accessible. <clears throat> Let me talk first about some of the complaints that may arise when there's a psoas major problem, tension or shortness. And so as major can contribute to a lot of different symptoms, let's say, in the body. And some of those very common ones are low back pain. That's the most common one, probably. Also, when so as major is short or tense, you may get what we call a snapping hip. So there's this tendon of so as major maybe rubbing across the pubic bone in the front. And whenever you're, say, doing a leg lift or leg lowering, get that snap or hug the knees to chest, get a pinching pinching feeling in the front of the hip. Um, some of those things have to do with, may have to do with psoas major. Also pelvic obliquities, the appearance of scoliosis, leg length differences, things like that. So it, it may have far ranging um, symptoms. But what's tricky about psoas major is anywhere there's a lot of tension, it may not love stretching, right? So you can think about a chronically tense contracted muscle, you can think of it like a bungee cord. And when you put a knot in it, like a tight spot, and you just stretch it, stretch it, stretch it, stretch it for years, then the bungee cord might stretch, but the knot gets tighter. It's, a, it's kind of like that with some muscles where you may stretch your psoas endlessly and it never really releases. So there's stretching and there's releasing. Psoas major wants releasing. And for a lot of muscles in the body, you and I both like to stick balls in them. We do. <laughs> but psoas is not particularly conducive to that due to its location. Can you describe for the listeners who might not, you know, have a picture in their head of just how deep the psoas major is in the body, in the abdomen? Yeah, it's very deep. And it's 
it's not really advisable to get to it with a ball, I would say. I've run into some trouble myself trying to access it, it unless you're using a very soft ball, like the squishy ball from Yoga Tuna is great for the abdomen and perhaps getting into psoas. But basically where psoas major is, is if you were to reach into your belly, right, to this, just to the side of the belly button, and you could reach through your abdominal wall, four layers of muscle, then reach through your organs and reach all the way to the spine and basically touch your spine from the front, you'd be touching psoas major. If you're interested, actually, I recommend Googling a cross section of the abdomen with the psoas major highlighted. Mm-hmm. You can just Google that. I'm sure that there are images of easily to, easy to pull up. And then you can see how deeply buried the psoas major is. I've had some good effect from massaging the quadratus lumborum from behind mm-hmm. instead. I had a, for, for a time I was getting cramping, sometimes severe cramping, but sometimes just this burning in my abdomen that I finally narrowed down to being the psoas. And massaging the lower erectors and the quadratus lumborum it kind of transferred through <laughs> the softening, the releasing transferred through and helped to let go. So that's the direction that I've been able to access, not directly so as major, but have an effect on it. Definitely. I think quadratus lumborum, <clears throat> it's best friends with so as major. It's, so if you could keep reaching once we've reached from the front all the way to the spine and touch so as major, if we could re- keep reaching, back, we'd then run into quadratus lumborum on the side of the spine. They're very, they're next door neighbors and they're fascially completely connected. So it makes a lot of sense that when you release and start to melt the connective tissue around quadratus lumborum, that melting has no boundary. That fasc, those fascial connect, connections have no boundary. They have no end. They don't care what muscle you're on. So it's going to spread just a little bit. It doesn't have to go far to so as major. Yeah. And for any listeners who have never done a dissection or watched dissection videos, it's important to understand that the term anatomy refers to the separation of body parts so that we can study them and understand them. But in a living body, there isn't that separation. So in a sense, even though they act differently, if you were to be able to x-ray vision into your body, you couldn't tell, oh, there's psoas and there's quadratus lumborum. They would appear as one mass to your eyes. Yes. Inside the body, tissues just become each other. They're very much more connected than we can study them as. So it's misleading. And our anatomical models are even more misleading. Uh, Dissection videos would be great. Those are pretty accessible probably online. Um, if you ever have a chance to take a dissection training, yeah, it's super eye-opening. Gil Headley, I believe, has put his entire series of dissection videos on YouTube for free. Awesome. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, that's great. And by the way, there are plenty of ways to palpate so as major. It's hard to do on yourself, but uh, I palpate it on my patients in the clinic all the time just to kind of check it out, its tenderness. So just know it's palpable, but very responsive to some subtle, gentle things that we can all access. So I'm going to start with passive release. The way that I address a really cranky psoas major is first by passive release. There's a really nice position, a positional release for psoas major, which we sometimes call constructive rest, where I like to stack some yoga props up 
I'll place one bolster on the floor and then two blocks on top of the bolster and then another bolster on top of that. So it's like a prop tower and it approximates a couch. Basically, if I were at home, I could just scooch up to my couch, lie down on my back, put my bottom right up to the couch and set my legs on top of the couch. My knees are bent. Knees are kind of out to the sides just a little bit. Just let them flop out. And that's constructive rest position. And what it does for psoas major is it places it into a short position, but it's completely passive. So it's not contracting. It's not, it doesn't have any tension across it as a stretch. It is totally passive. And it's like spa day for psoas major. It's called the strain counter strain position also. I'll rest there in my back care class every single time. We start there for about five or eight or 10 minutes of pure relaxation, soften. Give psoas major a chance to just soften up, get some blood flow, not be hindered by contraction or tension. And it helps us prime the pump to further release and address psoas major. So there may be other ways to passively release psoas major. That's my favorite one. And the next phase of things I'll go into is an, what I call active release. And really this is just a process of exploiting reciprocal inhibition, which is a neuromuscular property of muscles where muscles on one side of the joint, if they're chronically contracted or holding lots of tension, they will inhibit the muscles on the other side of the joint. So what we find a lot is this pattern of, so as major tension, hip flexor tension, maybe even abdominal tension, and we'll find at the same time, back body sleepiness, is what I call it. And it has been called gluteal amnesia. I didn't make that up. That's an actual thing. And I see it about 99% of the time that I treat someone with low back pain is their backside is offline. Gluteal muscles are super sleepy. Glute max, especially, that is in charge of hip extension, where you swing your leg back behind you, which, by the way, a short hip flexor set and a short psoas major will limit hip extension range of motion to begin with. So we're already kind of set up for hip extension problems. But gluteal amnesia is a real thing. And when we can wake up gluteus maximus and the lumbar muscles as well, then we can inhibit psoas major and kind of turn that tide around. And that can be very effective. So I'll go into things like bridge pose or locust. Those are my two favorite gluteal awakening yoga postures that are quite accessible to anybody. We don't have to do anything fancy. I love to hear you say that because those are two poses that are that I teach in pretty much every single class. Awesome. Well, if I were to choose one posture for the modern human body, it's locust pose that we all pretty much all need all the time. Second place we bridge. They're my two favorite postures as well. I would never teach a class without those. So I will go into any kind of way to do some bridging and some locust types of stuff, some activating work for the back body. I like especially to wrap a strap around the thighs, tie a strap around the thighs to give an ability to press the thighs outward during the bridge. So very often we'll place a block between the legs and squeeze the block, which is lovely as well. But my choice is always to wrap a strap around the thighs just above the knees so that the thighs are about parallel, maybe even wider than parallel and press out with the thighs as we do our bridging. And that becomes what I call a butt burning bridge. And you can really feel the gluteal activation in that. 
And that's because the the gluteus maximus is participates in hip abduction as well as hip extension. And so when you're pressing out, just to help the listeners understand why that particular action really activates the gluteus maximus so well. Mm-hmm. And it also wakes up gluteus medius, which is a best friend for gluteus maximus. So we just get a lot of overflow into that neuromuscular connection into the glutes. So, so we've got phase one, passive release, phase two, active release. Again, there are lots of ways to do both of those. And then third phase will be, let's do some lengthening. Let's invite psoas major to lengthen. We've kind of primed the pump, so to speak. And now it's likely to be a little bit more yielding, right? It's been relaxed. It's been inhibited. And now it might agree to a little bit of length. So we can do things like a low lunge, warrior one, or all these things where your back leg is back. My choice would be a low lunge, honestly where we simply come up into a low lunge and establish a neutral pelvis and a neutral rib cage on top and keeping that stacked lunge forward so that we're not thrusting our ribs forward into a back bending lunge. All right. There's nothing wrong with back bending at all. I love it. It's delicious. But as long as the ribs aren't anchored, so as major won't lengthen as much. So low lunge, stacked, maybe arms overhead, just even add to it, and then use the breath as a stretching tool. Once we're stacked and in a position of length, then the breath just comes in and creates the suppleness in the center of the body. And it's expanding everything outward in all directions and then relaxing back inward. And it becomes a tool for stretching. Where, if anywhere, is there a role for psoas engaging or strengthening? That's a great question. I don't normally focus on it. I don't normally say, hmm, so as is a problem, let's make it stronger. Let's do some leg lifts. What I find is when there's a so as major problem already, and we do a lot of activation of so as major, we kind of make things a little worse, at least in the short term. So for example, when I see this pattern in people, I might suggest for the short term, you know, I would stay away from the leg lifts and leg lowering and maybe Navasana boat pose for a while because they so crank up. So as major, which is already cranked up. So I'm going to first start by working on releasing the muscle, getting it to some optimal length, and then it's likely to just jump in and play its role as it's designed to. And it also won't overreact when we do some of those movements that call on it, like boat pose, like leg lifts and stuff like that. It'll be able to kind of handle it better and be able to have that resiliency where, yes, it can contract, but then it's also able to relax back to resting tone. That makes a lot of sense. So for me, I, maybe in the past year or two, strengthening my psoas has actually become a focus for me because I started to notice it as a weak point in my body. And that might not have been the case 15 years ago when the rest of my body was a lot weaker. But at a certain point, I started to be working on movements that I recognized psoas weakness as a limitation for me. I think that strengthening the psoas has to come in tandem with these other points that you've made because, you know, part of why I was experiencing 
the burning sensation in my abdomen would come from overly doing movements that overly targeted the psoas. Like I kind of had no clue what it really was. It was so weird. I thought it was maybe an infection or something. I went to doctors and, and they were like, yeah, there's nothing there, but your psoas. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, I, I get the picture. I get it. My personal experience is that that final lengthening happens more effectively in my body after I do engagement. The place where I would add that in, obviously not for somebody who's generally weak and, you know, the point of overtension without the strength to back it up, but maybe the yoga teachers who have been exploring this for a while is add that in as number three before the final lengthening. Definitely. That's the perfect place for it. Yes, absolutely. And you brought up a couple really good points. One is this other neuromuscular property called contract, relax, or this way we can influence the neuromuscular pattern, which is that a muscle will relax and lengthen better after it has contracted. Yes. So I think that's a perfect place to put it in our formula, passive release, active release, activation perhaps, and then lengthening. And by the way, lengthening may include first dynamic stretching, then static. That's how I would approach it. I'm a big fan of dynamic stretching where we're moving very slowly, but we're moving. We're moving into a stretch and then out of a stretch, moving with the breath very slowly, then stay a while. So, but back to your point about activation of psoas major and that contract relax property. When a muscle is on lockdown, any muscle in the body, it's not just that it won't release well or lengthen, it's also that it won't contract well. So we have both problems. Anytime we're dealing with a muscle that is stuck, it's on lockdown, it's you know, like so as major is in our discussion today. So it makes a lot of sense to bring that piece in when the body can handle it without kind of triggering this worse symptoms. It's the same with pelvic floor. You know, a lot of times when we get the pelvic floor problems, we, we may have signs of weakness, whether it's urinary incontinence or prolapse or things like that, but we also have signs of um, tension and we, they coexist. Same thing with psoas, coexisting weakness and tension. So what I'm hearing is that when you're working with a population, a more fragile population, say in a back care class, then the strengthening component is probably not appropriate for them. But if you're working with a more athletic population, that might be appropriate to bring in. Yeah, I think it's going to depend on the population. I'm thinking about my back care class, which is very gentle and very accessible to beginners, et cetera. And a lot of people have injuries and challenges going on, but we do a good bit of strengthening. We don't do any specific psoas targeting. I'm not going to do leg lifts or boat pose per se, but we do almost always do side plank variations, for example. So as major can't escape working with something like that, right? It's in the mix of things that are stabilizing the lumbosacral area whenever we do static stability like tabletop balance or side plank, which are two things I almost always do in the back here class. So I can see where there are some really good opportunities to sneak in some stability work without cranking it up too much and then make that progression towards heavier loading of that muscle. Yoga teachers who are teaching group classes, we're always interested in how to get a majority of people into as close 
an approximation of the exercise as possible, as efficiently as possible. So I know you have some thoughts about cues that are more effective and less effective. Yes, I think we could do a whole talk on cueing. I think in general, we over cue in asana practice. I think we say too many things, especially for most of our beginner type students. And what happens when we over cue, we know this from motor learning research, is that over cueing inhibits learning. It inhibits our ability to find movement from inside the body and have the brain and the body figure something out on its own. So I think some cueing is absolutely necessary and wonderful, but in general, what I like to tell yoga teachers is less is more. Just say less. Say fewer things and let's work on refining our language so that what we're saying is what we mean to say, right? And is most efficient and effective like you're like you're talking about. So I think some ways to focus on that would be to, rather than laying down anatomical cues in a way that suggests that they are correct, like there's this air of rightness and wrongness about how to do things sometimes in asana practice. I think that's not very helpful, but guiding students to explore their body is very helpful. So like Let's work on Tadasana today and let's explore the pelvis. Hmm, can we feel the bones of the pelvis and then feel how it moves in space? And then what does it feel like when we line this front plane of the pelvis up vertically? What's that feel like in your body? So we can lead students to just explore that. And then maybe we bring that back when we're in, say, warrior two or some other posture. Hey, let's check in with the pelvis again. Then we can learn about our habits What do I habitually do in standing posture in Tadasana? What do I habitually do in warrior two? I'm learning from the inside of my own body. And over time, because I've explored this interesting concept about neutral pelvis, I can start to change those habits. First of all, I completely agree with you. I have been working on reducing the amount that I talk in my classes. It feels like forever and ever. (laughs) And I, I'm definitely making progress on that. When I teach a pose, I will generally say one or two things, but people still get the sense that I'm very specific because I want people to have a specific experience so that they can reflect on that specific experience. If I make my cues too general, then they're just going to fall into their habits and they're not going to have an experience that's different from the way they walk around in the world. I completely agree with you. And I'm always finding this new way of, <laughs> of interfacing with how do I, how much freedom do I give people? Because I, like in my heart, I want to give them complete freedom but i know that my ability to do, to practice in my body with complete freedom comes from having tried on a lot of other suggestions from teachers and having practiced that for so long and of course there's always that that level of letting go of whether or not somebody has a specific experience in your class in that moment right because <laughs> we can't <laughs> control that at the same time, you know, they came to class. They wanted, they wanted me to guide them in some way. And so I'm attempting to, to provide that for them in the best way that I know how. 
Yes, and I think there's a place for specific cues, and but where that comes from is what are you seeing in class? What's happening in your students' bodies right then? And responding to that. So if I'm looking around at a class and I'm seeing a bunch of rib thrusting, then all of a sudden our class becomes about rib cage positioning, and we're going to really explore that. If I don't see that, I'm not going to say anything about it, right? If I don't see any kind of really glaring pelvic positioning problems, rather than just habitually saying, drop your tailbone, instead, I'm not going to say anything, right? But if I see a lot of interesting stuff going on, then I'm going to bring that into the class. And if I only see it in one student, I may go over to him or her and say, hey, breathe into my hand here, you know, shift here, et cetera, and see how that feels. And so you can kind of tailor your verbal cues to where they are needed rather than just blanket statements that may actually not apply to the students who are there at that moment. I'm glad you said that because I think that circles back around to this whole say less. A lot of times as yoga teachers, we want something to do in class. You know, we've cued at some general form of a a pose or an exercise. And then what's our job there? Are we going to practice along with them? Many, many teachers say, no, don't do that. And what, you know, what I suggest to most teachers, not everybody, but for most teachers and what I work on myself is I work on watching my students during that time and making it okay that I'm just watching and that I might not even, I might just be taking it in and, and might not say anything else for that pose until it becomes clear or you know, I get an intuition on what direction to head. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. It requires a little patience and a little willingness to be quiet for a minute too, as a yoga teacher and to observe and to learn as you go, rather than to come in feeling a need to have all the answers. And a lot of times we are wanting to fix things a lot in yoga right? We're, like you said, people have come to my class, they're wanting something from me, and I want to deliver that, right? And it turns out, yes, people are coming because they want to be guided through a practice, and a lot of them are coming for physical reasons. Most of us in the West access yoga because of fitness goals or some body goal, some structural orientation towards yoga, and that's fine. That's our entry point. But what it's also helpful to remember is that you know, when someone comes to an asana class, they're really not at physical therapy. They're coming to yoga and yoga is so much more interesting than where your pelvis is, right? So part of the practice of yoga is about paying attention and anatomical experience is a huge anchor for our awareness to to lead us inward. But it's really that experience of going inward and studying this embodied experience, understanding how it feels to be in my body, how it feels to be breathing, to notice my thoughts, what arises in a practice. That's the practice of yoga. And so I do think that, again, over-cueing makes the yoga experience more external, makes it more about right and wrong and less about this inner exploration of what it feels like to be a human being and how to evolve as a human being in the direction of my highest goals, right? Which is ultimately 
what yoga can be. So I, I think it's really helpful to just bring it back all the time to what is it that yoga actually cares about here? And we can help people feel better in their bodies. Absolutely. But there's so much more to it. Well said. There's so much more that we could, so many more directions we could take this, but that feels like a really beautiful point to stop. Is there anything else that you think is important that the listeners hear or anything else that you really want to say before we wrap up? Well, I think I would just emphasize whatever we can do as yoga teachers to empower students to explore their experience, to step into a place of curiosity and exploration about this embodiment experience and step out of a place of expectation and judgment about it, the more we're going to have positive impact, not only on the body and the structural results we get from yoga practice, but on the mind and on the spirit and on the heart as well. So I think that's the direction we can all take it. If listeners want to find out more about you, Libby, or if they want to study with you, how can they find you? Well, I practice physical therapy and yoga therapy at Asheville Holistic Physical Therapy here in Asheville. So I'm there a couple days a week in my office and our website is ashevilleholisticpt.com. So people can find me that way in terms of private sessions. And then um, I teach three weekly classes every week at Asheville Yoga Center. On Mondays and Wednesdays at 1230 is my back care class. And on Fridays at 1230, I teach a self-massage class where I bring therapy balls and we roll our bodies on them to massage different areas and explore explore the body that way. I also participate in Asheville Yoga Center's teacher training programs. I'm the lead instructor and director of our 300-hour therapeutically focused yoga teacher training program. I also teach several weekend modules there, which anyone can take. I teach a module on anatomy, which where we'll go into all of this stuff, play around with that and observe each other a lot that weekend. I teach one on chronic pain with a couple other people. I teach one on prenatal, postnatal, and on aging. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and letting the listeners overhear one of our many yoga conversations. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. It's just like hanging out and talking with Mado about anatomy as usual.